You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. September 26, 1983, at a quarter past midnight Moscow time. Stanislav Petrov, the deputy director for combat algorithms at the Russian Ground Command and Control Center, was about to decide whether five skintillions on his screen, which looked like specks of glitter against a tuxedo jacket, were intercontinental ballistic missiles, the first volley in a surprise American nuclear attack against the Soviet Union. Officers in a half dozen other bunkers across the Soviet Union listened on the nuclear party line that the Soviets had set up, waiting for his answer. For all he knew, Yuri Andropov, the general secretary of the Soviet Union at the time in 1983, had already been notified. As the clock ticked, as data came in for him, for Petrov, time slowed down. He was a rational man, a trained engineer, young enough to be skeptical of Kremlin propaganda about the United States. He understood the rhetorical games that both sides played. 21 days earlier, of course, a Soviet Army air defense fighter on patrol had destroyed a Korean passenger plane that it mistook for an American spy plane. 229 innocents had died. The Soviets recovered only their shoes. Ties between Moscow and Washington froze. The Americans had just finished a NATO exercise, Reforger, where they deployed 15,000 troops to Western Europe in record time, the biggest rehearsal of that type that the Soviets had ever seen. NATO was on the verge of salting Western Europe with new nuclear missiles that could reach the Russian border within minutes of first detection. The KGB was warning the Politburo that Americans were itching to invade the island of Grenada and oust the Soviet-friendly occupation government there. A hunch that would be right. And Reagan had just postponed a summit with Andrapov until next year. And then there were Reagan's words. He had urged Christian supporters to beware of the temptation of pride, the temptation of blithely declaring yourselves above it all and label all sides equally at fault to ignore the facts of history and the aggressive impulses of an evil empire. That evil empire was for better or for worse, the country where Petrov and his wife were raising their two young children. The way he told the story, Petrov never wanted to join the Soviet military, he did not have the bearing of a soldier. He was slight and nerdy. While their kids played with toys, he tinkered with them. He wanted to be an engineer. However, his parents forced him to enlist at age 17. Gotta be patriotic. His father had served Russia and they insisted, so should he. 
But the Soviet military was starved for talented scientists and engineers in the 1970s. They were desperate to catch up with the United States and the West on military, economic, and agricultural fronts. And Petrov fit that bill. He found his career fast-tracked. At age 29, he was assigned to one of the Soviet military's highest priority projects, an early warning system for nuclear missiles that would replace an aging version built during Nikita Khrushchev's tenure as general secretary. He designed the algorithms that would allow massive ground-based mainframes to determine whether a flash of energy was merely a random burst of photons or an intercontinental ballistic missile strike. The satellites were given the formal designation of USUR, but they were known in the military as the OCO constellation. OCO meant I. The Soviets knew the West was watching each successive OCO launch, calibrating their war plans for its eventual completion, and that the Americans were in the process of upgrading their entire strategic deterrent. That was one reason that the USSR openly proclaimed OCO's full operational status in 1982. But Petrov knew better. OCO's eyes were not perfect. They were occluded. The hardware was raw and the system was glitchy. It had occasionally failed to detect missile launches that the Americans had announced in advance. Petrov, as a lieutenant colonel, occasionally served as battle staff commander for the staff of engineers, emergency action specialist, political and military intelligence analyst. If an OCO satellite registered a hit, he would decide who to call and what to say to them. Petrov did not like pulling the nuclear war watch. He felt unlikely when he was recalled from home, often on 20 minutes notice. His 12-hour shift would begin at 8 o'clock p.m. In an imposing chamber outside the watchroom, he would inspect each of the 120 or so officers and enlisted men who would serve as the Soviets' eyes and ears that night. If he found a uniform too crumply, he would yank the offender out of line and replace him. The starch discipline reflected the seriousness of the mission, and Petrov, despite his desire to be elsewhere, followed that protocol. Shift changes took an hour. The outgoing watch commander briefed him on the day. He knew the mechanics of the early warning system as well as anyone. He also knew, in a glass-enclosed office several meters away, KGB political officers had their own line to the Kremlin. They could, in theory, disagree with his call. They had access to real-time intelligence that he did not. The officers were friendly. But he did not know what they said behind those closed doors. The watch room was two stories tall. The battle staff sat at their consoles, their eyes moving from displays on their desk to the large projection screens that wallpapered one end of the room. One, fed from a reconnaissance satellite, showed a nearly live view of Earth from a high polar orbit. Petrov could tell the time by watching the slow progress of the boundary line between shadow and sunlight over the European, Asian, and American continents. The more important of the two displays was the OCO display. It had an electronic map of the globe with the USSR and the US outlined and American nuclear missile bases marked with crosses. On this day, about 15 minutes past midnight, Petrov was troubleshooting. One of the satellites was fluctuating in its orbit, and engineers were trying to send signals from the ground in order to correct it. The satellites also had to dance in unison. Radar hits had to be triangulated so that the computers could quickly project the trajectories of ICBMs. Petrov sat behind a console in the back of the room, sipping tea with an assistant. He just finished his supper, a cheese and sausage sandwich. His satellites had good coverage of the United States, where it was early evening. Half the continent was bathed in sunlight. Half was dark. Then came the siren. An insistent, repeating, blang, blang, blang. Almost too loud, Petrov later remembered. And not all like 
the siren that was used in the exercises. It was something different. Blang, blang. He stood up. Underneath the monitors, a huge electronic banner began to flash in red and white. Oko's prisms were bombarded by the energy signature of what its computers interpreted as an ICBM missile launch from somewhere inside the United States. Petra felt something resembling shock. Heads turned to him. What should they do? His instinct told him that this alarm was a mistake. He didn't know why it was a mistake, but he knew it had to be. Check your systems, Petrov ordered. But as he ran through scenarios, everything stopped. The warning banners disappeared. The satellite was no longer registering that missile event. He picked up a phone at his desk and told the Kremlin to stand down. False alarm. All good, except at the very moment he, the alarm sounds again. Bling! The officer at the other end of the phone could hear too. Another potential event from a similar area somewhere in the western United States. One by one, Petro's team now reporting into him. The main computer is functioning. Its backup's functioning. The communication links are functioning. Other sensors are all online. Everything's working. A backup command center that monitored a less sensitive early warning system picked up nothing. Although Petrov knew that these sensors were not designed to detect launches so quickly. Third underground command center, this one operated by a special section of the Soviet army, opens up a line to Petrov. And then, a third event. At that point, the computers were programmed to presume that, with three detections in a short period of time, an attack was underway. The banner in the front of the room changed too. Missile attack, it flashed. Then came a fourth. Then came a fifth. The satellites were seeing something. The information they received flowed into the two independent processing systems. The warning could not be triggered if only one of them was working. A computer dedicated to accessing the probability of a launch based on all the available data had just reported. Yeah, it's a high probability of an attack. All of the computer senses telling him what to do. He knows he had the Kremlin on the line. He knows there's awareness of the event. The KGB officers are nearby in the room. He has no idea how many people are monitoring what he's deciding. But everyone is looking to him. At that point, Petrov's training should have ended the debate. He was responsible for the sensors in his own small box, and the sensors were going off. From everything he could see, the Americans have decided to start a nuclear war. And as inconceivable as it is to us today, Petrov was inclined to think that Americans would do just that. In one sense, he could not do his job without being able to assume the worst. He had to. Every missiler in their silos had to assume that the enemy would strike, because if they harbored any doubts, they'd never be able to blast through a well-fortified wall of cognitive resistance to nuclear war that we all have. This was Petrov's job. To answer the questions of whether the United States had launched a missile, Petrov knew it would have to be informed by even the less answerable question of whether they ever would. And if they would... How would they do it? His rule of thumb was that if it happened, the United States would try to decimate the United uh, the Soviet Union with one big first strike, hundreds of missiles launched at once. This is what the Soviet Union would do if, God forbid, they decided on that similar course and to destroy the United States. If, on the other hand, only one missile was detected, it could be an accident. Only three Soviet leaders had the authority to order a retaliatory strike. Two of them would have to concur to do it. Since it would take 20 minutes for an ICBM from the United States to reach Moscow, Soviet leaders had at most about 16 minutes to make their own decision, or else their missiles would fizzle in their silos and their fighter bombers would be incinerated before they even got off the ground. So he made the call. He wasn't totally sure, but he was pretty sure. 
This was a false alarm. He didn't know what it was, but it was not a missile launch. And when he hung up the phone and reported that, his stomach was tight. He waited for a backup set of ground-based sensors that would register missiles as they drove over the meridian, reported in, as they did. This was the moment. A few minutes later, when they would have been crossing that meridian, the sensors picked up no missiles. There was nothing. He had been right. Heard investigation by the Soviet general staff would later determine that Okos, the eye, had picked up reflections from high clouds passing over the F.E. Warrant Air Force Base in Wyoming. And that's all it was. The failure of Okos panicked the Soviet war planners. For years, all their war games had come to the same conclusion. In a nuclear conflict, the side that struck first would be the only side with anything left at the end. The story of Oko uh, and Petrov, who may have saved the world that night. I know it's not as close as one thinks because the right person was probably on the job that night who knew the malfunctioning of the system and was strong enough to make a call. And nobody intervened. This is just one of the many insightful stories in Mark Ambinder's The Brink, President Reagan, and the Nuclear War Scare of 1983. And I'm glad I got the chance to talk to him. He uh, was the White House correspondent for National Journal and the politics editor of The Atlantic. He's been an on-air analyst and consultant for CBS News, spent some time at ABC News, um, quite knowledgeable about these topics. So I think it's really interesting to talk to Mark because we had done the Dozen Ronald Reagan series and we talked a lot about this topics. And I always found that this was one area that I had to research the most. It's not really that hard to conclude that Reagan made a contribution to the end of the Cold War in meeting with Gorbachev, right, in having summits, in in passing and and pushing for the passage of the INF Treaty. It almost makes the question easy, of course. President Reagan's actions contributed there. But the harder part is about Reagan's actions during the first term of his presidency and what was going on at the Soviet side, and we know so much about it much more than we knew at the time of Reagan's presidency's end when the Reagan legacy project kind of started and there was so much talk about, oh, what Reagan did was was great in the first term. And it's not that it's not um, necessarily, but with the information you have, there's a more balanced view. So I will get into that in our conversation with Mark. couple of notes. Um I was uh, just came back from podcast movement in Philadelphia. That was a great opportunity to talk to other podcasters. I've been doing this for a dozen years, and uh, it's the first time I've attended a, a conference of podcasters. It was interesting to talk to people. I'm not the longest person podcasting when there were people starting in 2004 and 2005 and things like that, but uh, it was interesting to talk to people and I think the one conversation starting point that would always sort of shock people is how long my history can beat up your politics is on had a very good time at the history podcasters meetup at podcast movement in Philadelphia that was run principally by Scott Rank at history unplugged podcast his is a really good podcast and very productive there's a lot of good and interesting history stories about, say, camels that the U.S. cavalry used in the American Southwest, about the history of beer and prohibition and drinking culture. Uh, he interviews the Grammar Girl from the Grammar Girl podcast and talks about the history of words. I mean, all of these, like, very interesting stories. So a uh, highly recommend History Unplugged podcast. Also, I am interviewed on that podcast on a um, very recent episode. 
A note about the premium podcast, I'm going to be having uh, additional conversations on there. On the premium podcast, we're going to get more with Mark into what it's like to be a White House correspondent. So www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpoliticspremium.com. Mark Ambire is the former White House correspondent for the National Journal. He's the author of The Brink, President Reagan and the Nuclear War Scare of 1983, and I am delighted to have him on. Uh, thanks for coming on My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. It's my pleasure. History and politics are my favorite subjects. So. They intersect. <laughs> we had done on this show a series called A Dozen Ronald Reagans, and we went into a lot of what I think is is forgotten about how amped up the nuclear game was, I noted that Time Magazine and some Russian sources were referring it as the second Cold War because they felt that it had been the post-detente era and that we were entering a second Cold War at this time. And now after so many years from the INF Treaty and Reagan and Gorbachev meeting, and I guess I'd just start with, you know, how close did we come to a nuclear war in 1983? To answer that question, I think the, the best thing I can do is put you back into a particular day and, and date. It was November 8th, 1983, during the middle of NATO's Able Archer exercise, which was the annual exercise that NATO countries performed to practice releasing nuclear weapons from the United States to the countries that were actually going to use them. This is not uh, a task that everyone loved, but you had to exercise it and and make sure that all the systems work. But this year, the exercise had taken uh, new import because the Soviet Union, which in the past had used exercises as a cover to launch some sort of geopolitical or military offensive, were watching very carefully to see if NATO was going to somehow do the same during this exercise. And uh, on, on that night, which was the night where the actual procedures were going to be rehearsed, so afraid were members of the Soviet military, the strategic rocket forces in particular, that they had dispersed their mobile ICBM regiments to the countryside, to their secret wartime positions. They were on three-minute alert standby. They had dispatched KGB officers to go down into the Soviet equivalent of ICBM bunkers. And the KGB officer had had the actual keys that would be used to turn in the case of a valid launch order. They also had guns so that they could enforce any hesitation on behalf of the Soviet missileers. You had some reports that Soviet military officials in the chain of command were in their wartime bunkers. You had uh, in East Germany um, MiG helicopters that were waiting on combat alert on the tarmac, fueled and ready to go, among other signs. And what's scary about all of this together is that if the Soviets were doing this simply to display that they were in an increased state of readiness, they would announce it in some way, but they didn't. They were genuinely worried, and the genuineness is evidenced by the fact that nobody knew about any of this until, well, many months after in some cases, um, and and years after in other cases. So they were hedging against the possibility that a first nuclear strike was right around the corner, and all of the Western intelligence signs and signals missed this part. And then that, and that's pretty scary. And so the answer to your question is we were pretty close because when you are in an environment like that, just think of, for example, the, the, just of the word shockwave. When, when anyone is nervous, the decision thresholds they have for seemingly rational actions, rational actions with consequences lower themselves. And so you and I can think, well, we would never do that in that situation. But we weren't in that vein of fear and anticipation and uncertainty. And who knows what we would have done in those situations. It is interesting to probe a bit on on the mentalities, is particularly on the Soviet side to the extent we know. In my Reagan series, I tried as best to do that um, a lot more on 
Reagan's side and what his thinking is. There's been a lot of speculation about that. And, uh, but on the Soviet side, and I, I do recall, I can't remember the name of the Russian official, but a Russian official years later saying, you know, saying, th- Reagan saying things like an evil empire or that the Soviet Union was to be put in the ash heap of history. Sure, it's a rhetorical point. For, with somebody like Andropov, don't, that's not the kind of language to, to use. They may very well be taking it seriously that this is an attempt to actually try to strike and actually remove the threat of the Soviet Union from the world. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call. Clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Yes, and I think I think many Soviet politicians read what President Reagan said on several levels. The first, obviously, understanding that there is a domestic political element to it, that Reagan was aspiring to achieve some domestic objectives. Certainly, for example, after the 1982 elections, when the peace movement had redounded to the benefit of Democrats, Reagan was trying to make a case that there was a certainly need for a comprehensive push against nuclear weapons, but Reagan wanted it done his way. That led to the evil empire speech. And the Soviets understood that to some degree. Had all of this been happening in a vacuum, that might have been where it remained because certainly both sides were not unfamiliar to this type of rhetoric, but none of it was happening in any vacuum whatsoever. And the Soviets were also at the same time watching and listening and dealing with a very new and aggressive American nuclear doctrine that committed the U.S. to not only fight a protracted nuclear war, but to easily win one to remove the Soviet second strike capability, which essentially would cut the heart out of all of these deterrents and and mutually assured destruction theories that had kept the two sides at peace. And they also were privy to very aggressive exercises by the United States Navy. The Navy was changing its strategy to essentially pin in Russian SSBNs, which is a, a, a to their ports, uh, before war would start, which are those uh, nuclear submarines, nuclear submarines. Yeah. Which amounted to, again, a, a big change of strategy that was just a lot more aggressive than it had been during detente. And then you have a, a series of events in 1983, the shooting down of the Korean uh, passenger jet in Soviet territory. You have a very shaky Soviet command and control system that's producing false warnings. You have the big NATO exercise where all the troops return to Germany once a year as a show of deterrence. And and again, you, you and then you have the unpredictable element, at least for the Soviets, of what the heck the Star Wars was, the strategic mm-hmm. defense initiative, which had surprised, of course, many American politicians and many of Reagan's aides. <laughs> Surprised some of the some of Reagan's cabinet. <laughs> yeah. It did. It did because they they weren't George George Shull's, you know, remembers hearing about it in a meeting and then when it was announced on television right before it was about to be announced, you said, What 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 is this? What are we doing? You had a sense I that the uh and drop off wasn't too much fooled, say, by that Star Wars. They that they, they seemed to know that Reagan didn't really have anything in his hand at that time. And Dropoff himself wasn't. And Dropoff also knew, essentially, intuitively, that, number one, the Soviets have been trying for years to do something similar, to mm-hmm. build something similar, or engineer something similar, and it failed. And he also knew that, well, if it was just restricted as as it, it had to be any sort of space-based system to ICBMs, which of course go into space before they drop down back onto Earth, that the second strike capability, which 
if, which in nuclear doctrine or the language of the nuclear priesthood refers to what submarines can do because submarines, nuclear submarines, their missiles and then cruise missiles don't go outside the atmosphere. And so an atmospheric, you know, a, a, a higher than atmospheric shield wouldn't work. Um, but what, what M. Dropoff and some other Soviet military officials, uh, Dropoff was, of course, from the intelligence world, but Soviet military officials suspected that SDI was a cover for an electronic warfare attack mm-hmm. that would blind the entire Soviet military system. So, and Dropoff harbored that suspicion, but his primary concern, look, his primary concern at that point, and I think this contributes to the tension as well, as just a human being, you know, he was dying from kidney failure and he spent half of that year in the hospital. When you're dying and you're thinking of your own mortality, your frame of reference is going to be a lot different and you're going to take these threats a lot differently. So he was trying to cling to power because, of course, there were his colleagues who knew he was dying and just wanted to let him die and get on with it. Uh, so he had to try to preserve his own power. But then as the leader of a nation, he was thinking in those terms as well. What if I make a mistake that consigns the Soviets to the, you know, Ashpin or dust heap of history? So uh, the just the habits of mind that these leaders were in at this very unique point in time made 1983 seem very different and took something like the Strategic Defense Initiative and added a sinister cast to it. Yeah, I think it's an it's an interesting point to make. And then uh, Reagan was rightly criticized, or Walter Mondale, by the time he's starting to run in 1984, saying, you know, there's been no meeting between a Soviet leader and an American president now in, um, you know, in, in, in over five years or more. And it's a very, very dangerous time. It's just this kind of two forces, not really to talking to each other that, uh, that would became very different once Gorbachev took power. But it was, it's interesting to get a picture of the time that I think a lot of people have forgotten. Um, yeah. It was the longest period in the Cold War where where the leaders had not spoken. Um, and and that's one of the reasons why when people are trying to place this period in in a larger stream of history, they'll say, well, it was the second Cold War. And I don't really think it was the second Cold War more than really the continuation of the collapse of, of detente. And mm. and again, the fact that Soviet leaders were really old and dying. but um, bringing that into the present day on the one hand. So if, if, if any American president is meeting with an adversary who has a new or either developing a nuclear capacity in the case of North Korea and is threatened to use it, uh, or has obviously the residual enormous um, capability that the Soviet former Soviet union has one-to-one contact one-to-one to put aside all of the, all of the, and I hate to call it ephemera, but just for mm. the sake of of nuclear weapons, the ephemera around, you know, around um, what Trump owes to Putin or what Putin has on Trump or all that, um, it is certainly uh, on 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 a basic level good that leaders are talking because really, traditionally only presidents have had the power to convey directly and build relationships that really can reduce tensions even when other factors in the world are, are conspiring to produce these tensions. And then the question, but then the question becomes, well, what's the next step? And is the next step a series of agreements that would actually reduce the nuclear threat to each country or to the world? Or is the next step a series of geopolitical scenarios where tensions would actually increase um, and where regardless of what the relationship between the leaders were, the command and control system and the way the militaries were postured against each other made it seem like, again, the brinksmanship was still there and it almost didn't matter or doesn't matter what Trump or Putin actually intends. And I look at the Baltic states. Yeah, I think it's often... um... 
it's often forgotten that uh, we still have thousands of missiles pointed at each other. Uh, Reagan and Gorbachev talked about eliminating nuclear weapons in Reykjavik, but uh, that actually still has not happened. What they talked about in 19... 19- uh, 86 has still not happened. So, uh, we, we still have missiles pointed at each other and then we have new threats. Um, I, I take your point that, um, on one hand, it is very comforting sometimes to just see people talking. You know, you see Trump and Kim Jong un and that's, that's a, an image where usually any image of Kim Jong-un's is him in on a podium in front of his rocket launchers and, and, and as we used to see the old Soviets, um, uh, doing so. And it's refreshing on one hand to see them meeting. Putin maybe has been around a while and has been seen with Obama and Hillary Clinton and, and George W. Bush. And so it's not as uncommon. Um, but it's, you know, on one level, it's refreshing to see talk. There's a lot of comparisons to Reagan and Gorbachev anytime uh, an American president or Russian leader meet. Maybe we have too much of an arch- archetype in our mind that uh, everything will be the same as that, that the talking's always good. Uh, the one thing that strikes me is that I, I think Reagan did a good job as much as it didn't work out in, in Reykjavik, but also... Gorbachev had the desire to go in a peaceful direction and to reduce the nuclear threat. Here, it seems like a mixture. You know, on one hand, it's good to see the the leaders talking, but we're also unsure what we're giving up. No one's in the room. I mean, no one was in the room in Reykjavik either, really. I mean, there was the two secretary, the secretary of state and the foreign minister and the translators. So there was a lot of a lot of fear at that time in, in Reykjavik or afterwards. I remember the reading about the Joint Chiefs of Staff head in the United States. It was like, how did you know what the heck did he say there? What's this talk? You know, Thatcher calling up and saying, "What talk about eliminating nuclear weapons? What do you get your man out of there?" You know, kind of thing. Well, there there definitely is the parallel where the the establishments from both sides are really trying to figure out what was both said in private and, and uh, not just what was said in private, but what information or intonations was actually conveyed and how that, how, how they're supposed to react to that. Um, and in, in Reagan's case, indeed, I think, you know, there was Reagan had had a longstanding desire to in one fell swoop, although on his terms, eliminate everything, eliminate the entire threat. And that would run counter to the uh, solidity of the NATO deterrent, um, which explains why NATO leaders at the time and Margaret Thatcher were quite concerned when they read the account that he had offered to just give up everything. Um, and then, look, the, the entire defense of the United States was linked very heavily to its nuclear posture. And it just, even though it was the sort of fervent dreams of of presidents, it was cause for alarm. At the same time, there was an urgency that I think both the Soviets and the United States felt when it came to really aggressively starting uh, a pathway towards disarmament globally, denuclearization. Reagan conveyed that repeatedly and Gorbachev conveyed that repeatedly, and they obviously eventually agreed in several significant ways. And they had, you know, a set of issues that they they ultimately agreed on and then a set of issues that they, they disagreed on. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more, We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. 
Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You flash forward to today, the uncertainty is very different. Certainly, there, there is an urgency, a nuclear urgency, which is that the START Treaty has to be renewed, uh, which President uh, Obama and uh, at, at that point, President Medvedev had signed. That is coming up for expiration. The Intermediate Nuclear Force Treaty needs to be strengthened, which is the main treaty that was sort of the first treaty that Reagan and Gorbachev had signed. Um, and both sides have been developing new weapons that fall outside the scope of either of the main treaties. And so, again, from speaking as someone who would like to see fewer nuclear weapons in the world and the threat of it reduced, those are urgent matters to me. But the country or the world isn't really thinking here of nuclear brinksmanship. Um, the world, and, and, and I think some of this is a false sense of security, but the, the larger environment here is thinking about different conflicts. It's the reshaping of, of Europe and Asia to match Vladimir Putin's geopolitical ambitions. It's not so much that there's an urgency imputed to some nuclear conflict. Um, so what they're worried, of course, about President uh, President Trump giving up is an understanding that you know Putin has to follow through with the the sort of settlement and and get out of um, uh, you know the follow through essentially with the agreements at, at Donbass and stop the um, the blockade and has to himself withdraw material and troops from the eastern Ukraine and Putin has has now said that President. Trump was amenable to a suggestion that there's some sort of be some sort of referendum in the Ukraine, which is not at all what NATO wanted to hear. Um, and so the the very particular the particulars are different, but there is there is a a, a similar dynamic. Um, but certainly, without question, and there were people in in the United States, not just on the on the left who didn't like Reagan, Reagan, but in the defense establishment who didn't really trust Reagan to faithfully represent, you know, the orthodoxies of nuclear doctrine. And frankly, Reagan wouldn't represent the orthodoxies of nuclear doctrine because Reagan really didn't believe in them. Um, and so they they were as sort of jittery as some American officials are about Trump, uh, but not because they didn't think that he was a big difference. And it's it's hard to say this, but the big difference is not they didn't think that he didn't have the country's best interest at heart. It's just that they didn't think that he had the doctrine fully down. In the case of Trump, the question is very basic. Is he giving away um, because either he doesn't understand what uh, what's effectively in America's interests or he equates it to what's in his own interests or because of some other reason? Is he simply giving up the whole cupboard um, and truly plunging NATO in particular into um, a vast sea of uncertainty. So those, those are the, you know, those are the differences there. And I would say the other thing, and I make this point in the book a number of times, Reagan had studied Soviets for years before he actually began to meet them and understood very effectively what they were afraid of and what they needed. And again, no one ever questioned Reagan's commitment to the security of the United States as a paramount concern. So so there were some pretty big differences as well. Yeah, I often found that when there were criticisms of Reagan, like within the administration or from, say, people like Gene Kirkpatrick, who had left the administration and then became a critic of the INF uh, treaty, that often there was this little hint at the, uh, oh, Reagan, maybe he, you know, hints at age, hints at competence, but not, they knew they couldn't uh, do, deliver a broadside on his, uh, patriotism or, or commitments, but it was, it was often a hint there, like maybe he's being misled by people. By peacenik, right, exactly. So th- there is continuity here. Um, but the, the stakes were just very, 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 very different. And Reagan had established more than, more than once his, you know, bona fides here. And the American people were solidly behind him. He had the capacity to be a political leader 
as well, which is an important component of this, building domestic political support for whatever initiatives eventually he turned out to support. And that's not something that President Trump has. Um, assuming, again, we really know what President Trump's overall strategy is or what his objectives are. I, yeah. And I would wager to say that. Yeah, I mean. That, that people in his administration don't know. And that's part of the uncertainty. Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree. There's definitely a level of uncertainty. Of course, uh, it's easy, and we have done it on this program, to look at the early Reagan period and see so many parallels. I mean, one of the things I talk about on my program uh, in, in, the, in the last episode about Reagan um, was we ha- I have almost identical, identical Bruce Springsteen quotes um, of I don't know what to say about this election or it's in something close to it in 2016, in 1980 and then in 19 and, and in 2016, Bruce Springsteen quotes in concert of almost identical. There's all this criticism of Reagan. He goes to Bolivia and calls it Brazil. I mean, he, he's messing up at the first European meeting. I mean, he's kind of, uh, uh, you know, in, in that case, it was Pierre Trudeau is, is talking about him as a, you know, talking about fighting communism in the Screen Actors Guild and just just not making a great impression anywhere. And then he turns around and arguably had a role in ending the Cold War. So it's so you could see that parallel. You can see where people are asking this question. Well, uh, you know, you just don't know. Maybe the maybe this uh, per, this president has something up his sleeve, has like a secret plan or or is going to use in, in instinct and adjust um and um one way of saying is maybe he's you know crazy like a fox in a way like i'm gonna slap around my allies so now when i meet with uh vladimir uh he i'm credible i can negotiate in a credible fashion because he knows i'm not um i'm not uh you know uh just following their will when i meet with kim jong-un you know i having gone all into this American first stuff, I'm credible because I, uh, I, um, you know, I, I've shown that I'm not interested in your country. I'm interested in America f- at first, not, not, not being a world policeman. I'm, I'm asking NATO to contribute more. So, you know, I can see that argument being made. I'm, I'm presenting an argument that I don't particularly believe in, but <laughs> I can see that, uh, that argument being made and, and, and shaped it is um it it, it is uh, again in the abstract a, a a plausible argument and it is a plausible way to conduct diplomacy but it you know it unfortunately ignores what vladimir putin has been doing over the past five years which has been a a very which is prosecuting a, a very concerted strategy to shape the argument in in the other way where the first thing you would do as president if you if you wanted to come to his level and start to negotiate person to person would be to reassure nato about your commitment to its deterrence um because putin doesn't you know really couldn't care what germany is spending every year uh in terms of its you know gross domestic product as long as germany can continue to buy oil from uh, from Russia. Um, and it's, uh, it also requires the deft execution of someone who has a, a larger understanding, again, of what, what the objectives are. And it still is not entirely clear because although President Trump has said, what are your goals? And he'll say a word like Syria or Ukraine or nuclear weapons. I don't know what that means. Those are, <laughs> those are descriptive words. They aren't substantive goals that actually do stuff in the world and make human beings flourish more than they are. He wants a trade agreement of some sort with different countries, but he wants to renegotiate. I mean, there really is a pool of uncertainty about what President Trump wants. And that makes it very hard to say, well, the understanding if he's tough with NATO, he'll reassure Putin that he's not attending to use NATO as a cudgel against Putin, understanding that, you know, perhaps Putin is wary of NATO expansion. But look, presidents 
have been arguing. And I, I just looked to the last speech that Robert Gates gave the secretary of defense, where he was very explicit in saying that if NATO didn't reform how it made its decisions and how it was funded and where that money went, it would become very obsolete very quickly, saying that very explicitly. And Obama had said the same thing. We just sort of forget it because at the same time Obama was saying it, he wasn't shrieking from the U.S.'s commitments and and its unequal share of the burden, although he was pressing very publicly allies to increase their commitments. The commitments, incidentally, that Trump uh, is bragging that he secured from NATO were, of course, secured in the Obama administration, and NATO countries have started now to follow through on them. So, uh, and your um, yeah, your book um, exercises have come up so much in recent news because both in the North Korea situation and in the meeting with Putin, there's either reporting or there's actual events where exercises are being canceled or pledged to be canceled or um, new exercises are threatened and 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 the like. Uh, you talk in your book and looking at 1983, we, we, you, you talk often about how, how much exercises were a component of that Cold War were really like little mini, um, uh, Cold War weapons that would be kind of sent out at one time when something that the, the Russians did something that we didn't like. We, we showed that we could send hundreds of thousands of troops very quickly to Europe. In, in an exercise to kind of say, hey, we can do this if we have to. And it was almost like a, the, the whole Cold War was this in decades long demo, um, of strength. Now that, that those, how important are those exercises and, you know, then and today? That's a very, that's a very good question. And I think we underestimate the power of, of an exercise. We, the, the term, is kind of misleading. It's an ex, you know, I think exercise, it means it's fake, right? It's just, it's something mm-hmm. that things do. But the reason why exercises are, are a lot, are, I, I think better called rehearsals, um, is I start looking at it from the perspective of some alien who's looking down on the earth and sees one side exercising. It's going to look as if they're doing the real thing. You have no way of knowing whether an exercise is simply an exercise or it's a way for an adversary to move into a better position vis-a-vis the opposition in a sneaky way. And of course, Mm -hmm. again, historically, the Soviets had used exercises as a pretext to invade particularly Warsaw Pact countries that were having problems internally. So they had that fresh imprint on their minds. But anytime you exercise a capability, you're putting that capability out. You are putting troops in the motion. You're running them through the motions of actually rehearsing the procedures that they would execute during an actual war. You're moving troops to a state of higher readiness. It absolutely is a small weapon of sorts because the other side has to be correspondingly wary and has to either respond with some display of strength or they have to hedge their security posture. And that in and of itself ratchets up the tension anytime there's any exercise, even if it's small or if it's large. And so the larger these exercises became, the more aggressive they became, the more warlike they became, and the more the other side just again, as a matter of logic, has to prepare as if they're about to face some sort of war. They have to hedge, even if it's a little bit. But if you're reducing a threshold from, you know, a 90% decision-making threshold to a 75% decision-making threshold because your opponent is conducting an exercise, you're bringing the world closer to the brink. And you, throughout the history of the Cold War and the end of the Cold War and the post-Cold War period of tensions, that dynamic has been the same. And those exercises are still the point at which I think the maximum danger remains. 
Um, well, a reminder that I'm speaking with Mark Ambinder, the author of The Brink, President Reagan and the Nuclear War Scare of 1983. Highly recommended. It is very timely as well, and we're 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 at a time when an American president is meeting, has met with a Russian leader, um, and uh, I think a uh, a very interesting point of the book. I was trying to find it there, but uh, I, I'll just say it in general terms: where we we know now more about the Russian spy activities, the the secret weapon that they had of, of knowing a lot about what we did through their spy network. You see the the TV show The Americans. Uh, it's very popular and people, people enjoy that. And one of your, the sections of your book, you talk about how much they, uh, the Russians knew from their, uh, various spy networks about our capabilities. And I even have a CIA agent who mentions that, well, you know what? Um, maybe the more they know, the better. Maybe, maybe the fact that they, um, that they knew a lot about what we could do and what we were working on, um, rather than just having a little bit, having the full knowledge, uh, maybe that was a good thing that helped prevent war. Yeah, there is something to that. The Soviets had a, a cornucopia of spies throughout the West. And as spies do, spies sometimes tend to exaggerate. And spies only see one part of the picture. And sometimes that part can be very alarming. And sometimes it can be very comforting, depending on what they're saying. The issue here, though, is that although the Soviets were receiving a lot of very granular and often very accurate information from their spies, they chose not to believe it because it didn't necessarily fit with their preconceptions about what Reagan was up to. Um, or about what their own objectives were. And so there is one of the big lessons of the book on both sides is the need for intelligence as it's not just consumed and given out, but, you know, processed in a framework that looks at all assumptions and says, well, are we making an assumption about our adversary that is making this seem better or worse for us? How do we act? How do we act on this? And although the Soviets had really high quality, Soviets were great at collecting this intelligence and they were really, really bad at interpreting it. And that was throughout the Cold War, one of the mainstays of the Soviet U.S. intelligence rivalry. They had spies telling them that, of course, there was absolutely no way that NATO would ever launch a first strike. Spies that would be in a position to know. But those were not the spies that they believed. They believed in the spies who, for example, had visibility into some of the very secret electronic warfare projects that the U.S. was putting together. Those are the spies that they tended to believe. On the other side, it took a while for the West to appreciate the intelligence it was receiving about how afraid the Soviet Union mm-hmm. really was. The big spy being Oleg Gordievsky, who was a... KGB officer in London who was spying for the secret intelligence service, the MI6, for the Brits. The Brits actually believed Gordievsky pretty quickly when he was telling them in 1983 and early 84, look, the Soviets are really, really afraid that the West is going to launch an actual strike now, and your provocative behavior is making them more afraid. And it it took a few months for the U.S. to believe once the British started sharing that vein of intelligence that, well, this wasn't just some attempt by the British to get us to be a little bit less aggressive. This was actually Mm -hmm. something the Soviets believed. So there were interpretation issues on both sides. And this is a case study in how you can receive accurate intelligence and not believe it. And sometimes how, in order to believe that you have to go back and confirm it and match it up with signals intelligence and tactical collection and what you're seeing in the field and the things that you're seeing that the enemy doesn't want you to see. There is obviously a lot of guesswork in that. 
But to the credit of the United States, after about five or six months, it had become very clear that the intelligence showing that the Russians were genuinely afraid to the point of putting their mobile intermediate range ballistic missiles in the field on three minute alert was a true example of their fear and not something that they were simply trying to posture with. Yeah. And I think once you've established that, which I think your book helps to do and so much of what's come out, it tends to do. um, Once you establish that, it also informs the history of the rest of it and the what if what if there hadn't been a Gorbachev and, and Reagan wasn't so willing, didn't have this kind of quiet desire for at least in, in the right way to end nuclear weapons? If 83 had gone into 84 and 85 with the same type of brinksmanship, would we have been so lucky? I don't think we would have been. And I think it really took a leader who like President Reagan, who saw this intelligence, was humble enough to say, okay, we might be doing things that we shouldn't be doing. We need to change course. And then, of course, it took a Soviet Union that was in the economic straits that it was in and and was suffused with political chaos in Soviet satellites at that point. And the election of a forward-thinking technocratic leader without the sort of historical baggage and ties to different parts of the Russian establishment that might fight against peace, someone like Gorbachev, to really bring these issues to the fore. So certainly when, you know, I've been asked the question a lot, you know, did Reagan win the Cold War? Um, Reagan won the Cold War, Gorbachev won the Cold War. You're not separating them from the two. Obviously, their interactions did. Both of them, though, had to bring significant leadership qualities to the table, and both did. Yeah, I think it's often not seen that there was a change there, that uh, Reagan's first term persona and person that he was, at least publicly, on this issue, and changed. And you didn't hear evil empire much after 83. And then when he goes to Russia in 88, it becomes, oh, did I say that uh, type moment? So um, right. I think that that wasn't working and there was a change and that informs that question of, sure, of course, in his presidency, won the Cold War, but not merely because candidate Reagan won in 1980. The die wasn't cast there. There were a series of steps and changes and the role of the the anti-nuclear peace movement in around the world was a huge factor um, leading really both sides. I mean, the U.S. through democratic pressure and the, the chance, which now seems remote at best, but then seemed real that Reagan might lose the, the, the election. But uh, in the Soviets, the, the opinion of the world and that they might lose their relations with Western Europe that they were trying to maintain if they also didn't, um, didn't do something for peace. So this, this, this pressure from all sorts of people, uh, very strong in that time. We forget these days about the, the nuclear, um, the, much about the anti-nuclear protests and, and things like that. The oppositions, uh, the opposition parties, uh, in the United States and in Europe that were pressuring, uh, a really harsh stance that, um, so that, that 1981 Reagan first term kind of, you know, we'll just call our opponents names and, um, and beat their brains out and just be the strongest one on the block, you know, was modified. <laughs> and, uh, and there was a change there and, and an evolution really. There, there, there was. And I, I certainly think Reagan kept to his core principles evolved over time and saw capacities that he had leadership capacities such as empathy and such as his true curiosity about the Soviet Union be brought to service set of policies that he might not have considered early on, but by the end of his administration were critical were critical and crucial. Other than what we were able to discuss, anything else stands out that you think are important for the audience to know? I I think that anybody who wants to be president needs to have a better understanding of the nuclear command and control system 
what its vulnerabilities are, how particularly in the in the era of ubiquitous information and digital communication, how the system can be gamed in a way that could spark, as we've seen in Hawaii earlier this year, false alerts that pretend death for people that can provide inaccurate information to presidents. We as voters, because we haven't really had an actual nuclear conflict since the end of the Second World War, don't take much into account other than, okay, basic presidential temperament. But even then, we obviously don't take it into that much of an account. So I want voters in particular, I would love to see voters begin to ask very specific questions on the campaign trail about what presidential candidates know and don't know about the nuclear weapons they're going to inherit as president. Because I think the earlier that presidential candidates think about this, the more creative they can be when it comes to figuring out ultimately how to reduce the threat. That's a great point. Well, Mark, thanks for coming on. Uh, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. Uh, I hope that my history was very gentle to your politics today. But thank you so much. It was it was a true pleasure. And I, I love I, lo- I really enjoy this. In fact, I'm going to go back and listen to the uh, sort of 12 ways of looking at Ronald Reagan, because I think that's a that's a very um, apt and useful way of assessing anyone's life legacy and career. So that sounds really fascinating to me. Oh, glad to hear it. It was it was two years of my life. So I'm glad to hear it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I will I will pay some uh, justice to it. Well, we want to thank Mark Ambiner for coming on the program, and I want to thank you for listening. Remember, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And a reminder to subscribe if you're not subscribed on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, CastBox, Stitcher, whatever platform you know, you're know you using to listen helps a lot. And a reminder about that premium podcast where we're going to have an additional talk with Mark Ambiner about what it's like to be a White House correspondent. Thanks for listening. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.